All right, well, good morning. All right, well, I want to start off just by um, saying happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Today um, is a special day, Father's, happy Father's Day. Today's a special day as we honor the dads in our lives. Um, I'm grateful for my father, um, and being a father is a tremendous calling that comes with great joy. We also know that it requires tremendous work and sacrifice and many times failures. I know that part especially well. Um, for some of us today is a day that comes with great memories and joy as we think about our dads. Um, for others today is a different um, sort of memories as we think about our dad. Um, perhaps there's memories that are more painful. Um, some of us, um, unfortunately, um, have virtually no memories um, where our dad is concerned. Um, and so my, my hope, my prayer for us this morning is that as we um, look at, at God's word, um, that ultimately his word would direct us to himself, to, to the great, perfect, heavenly father. And, and you see, the truth is, no matter how awesome our earthly father is, or no matter how lousy our earthly father is, um, there is one who is better. There is a, a father in heaven who is far, far greater, one who will always be there, who will never leave us, and who will never hurt us. Um, dads in the house this morning, the measure of your greatness as a dad is how well do you point your kids to him. To determine how good of a father you are in this, in this world really is determined by how well do you point your family towards the great perfect father. How well do you do that? Our, par our passage this morning is the perfect passage, really, for, for a Father's Day. Um, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Just one simple verse. Um, if you have um, been here for a while, you know. If you're visiting with us, I'll let you know that we are in the middle of, well, towards the end of a series, focusing on the Beatitudes, um, the, the beginning portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are these verses, simple, timeless truths that Jesus begins his message with that really lays the foundation for what kingdom life is about. The life that is bought by the blood of Jesus, there are, there are implications for how now you should live. And Jesus lays these out in the Beatitudes. And so we've been going one verse at a time, one Beatitude, one blessing at a time, and just digging in a little deeper. They are beautiful truths. The, the amazing thing about some of the stuff that, that Jesus says in this sermon is that there are people around the world, since these words have been, been uttered, who, who may not even ascribe faith and follow Jesus, but who, who recognize the beauty in these words. But for us as followers of Jesus, we know that there are, is a deeper spiritual meaning he's pointing us to. And so we're going a little bit slower as we walk our way through there. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And the beatitude for us that we're looking at this morning is simply this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And so for our message, we're going to focus on that verse. We will use other scripture as we go along. I will remind you that there will not be any words on the screen. And so we do have Bibles in the back. If you don't have one with you, you can go back there. You can grab one if you have a phone or you can get closer to somebody who does. But our hope even during this series is that we would be people who are of this book. Okay, and so we need to know how to use our Bibles, how to navigate. If you don't know where the book of Matthews is, it's towards the back. 
All right, it's in the New Testament towards the back. It's the first book in the New Testament. And so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we will essentially just dive right in. Father God, Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Um, Lord, our prayer is that, um, that you would use it this morning to, to help us live lives that are in obedience to your word. And so I pray that your spirit would be in this place. Lord, I pray that your, your spirit would be here and would be here in power and in truth. Father, Lord, you know the hearts of the people that are in this room. You know exactly um, what they need to hear to be encouraged, Lord, and also to be challenged to live the life that you have called them to, the life that you pay the ultimate price for them to have, Father. And so we pray that you would be with us now. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in your word. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. As we have been studying the Beatitudes, there's been a simple thing that I am reminded of that I think sometimes in the faith, in the church, we can forget. And it's the truth that the saved life is a changed life. As we go through Beatitude by Beatitude, verse by verse, what we see is the life that has received the gift of salvation becomes then a new life. We looked last week at how God gives, he says, blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God. Ultimately, God gives those who have received the gift of salvation, he gives them a new heart. The saved life is to be a changed life. Now, hopefully if you are here today and you know the blessingness of salvation, you can, and as I look out and I see faces who I know well, I know for a fact that you know this truth with with reality, that the saved life is the changed life. I can only speak for myself. I, I really only know my story. And I know what my life looked like before it received the gift, before I received the gift of salvation. I know exactly what my life looked like. And the truth is, is that our lives, as we receive that gift, Jesus shows us by laying out this kingdom ethic, one virtue after another, is that our life, as, as it has been saved, now will be changed. It will be made anew. We are new creatures. We, cre creations. We are born again. We've been given a new life. And so this gives us a picture, ultimately, of what that life looks like. Blessed, he says. If you remember, kind of the, the illustration that I shared last week is I look at the Beatitudes. They follow a sequence, a logical order. There's a progression where one builds on the other. And the way I look at it is it's kind of like a valley. It's like a, a hill sloping down into a valley and then a hill making its way out of the valley. And the way you get down into the valley is you first start out by being poor to you're poor in spirit. You recognize these steps that you're taking down is, is really the, the, you becoming empty of who you are. And then at the bottom, you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, and the Lord fills you up and you make your way out of that valley. And as we take step by step out of the valley, we learn what the new life then looks like. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God, and blessed are those, the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is the picture of what that new life looks like. The saved life is the changed life. Our challenge this morning, again, I'm going to just hang out there a couple of questions, ask some questions, try to answer these questions as we figure out exactly what our Lord Jesus means by what, what does it mean to be a peacemaker. So that's the first question. What does he mean when he says, blessed are the peacemakers? What does Jesus have in mind when he says, you should be a peacemaker? 
Okay, so there's three words I'm going to use as kind of anchors that we're going to kind of use to kind of sink in the sand and circle around to help us come up with an understanding of what it means to be people who are to make peace. Now, the first word is peace itself. When you think about the story of the Bible, ultimately the story of the Bible is a story of peace. Peace is the main theme that runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. As you look at the storyline, it revolves around the subject of peace. When God first made man, he placed them in paradise. That was the garden, essentially, of peace. It was perfect, free from sin, free from strife and full of peace. Then sin crept in and disturbed that peace in the garden. The peace that existed between God and man was disturbed, but also the peace that existed between men themselves, between Adam and Eve. Sin crept in and disturbed that peace as well. The story of our world really is the story of man trying to renew this peace, though it is perpetually beyond our reach. Then, in an act of divine intervention, the Prince of Peace himself, Jesus, came and broke into time. He went to the cross to restore the peace that was lost. I did not mean that to rhyme, but it did. He went to the cross to restore the peace that was lost. Then we are told at the end of this book that one day Jesus will return and will establish his kingdom of peace. The new heavens, the new earth will be marked by this peace. When we think about the scriptures, when we think about this book, ultimately it's a story about peace. A peace that was lost and a peace that was restored. Now, the biblical concept of peace, this idea of in the Hebrew shalom, John MacArthur is really helpful here, he says that some may see it as an absence. When we think about what does peace mean, what is the idea of shalom, some may think of it as an absence of something. Peace is the absence of war, or it is the absence of strife and conflict. That when you have no war, when you have no conflict, you will necessarily have peace. However, in scripture, the idea of peace is, is not the absence of anything, rather it is the presence of something That is, when, when someone says shalom, when they would greet themselves with the word shalom or, or peace unto you, it doesn't mean, I hope you don't get into any trouble. I hope you live a life free from conflict. That's not ultimately what it means. It means, I hope you have the highest good coming your way. That's ultimately what it means. The biblical concept of peace or shalom does not focus on the absence of trouble. The biblical peace is unrelated to circumstances. This is critical for us to understand. As we navigate scripture, our peace, the peace that we have, is, is not dependent or, or affected by the circumstances around us. It is a quality of life that is unaffected by what happens on the outside. According to the biblical idea of shalom, you may be in the midst of great trial. You, you may know fully now what pain and conflict looks like, but you can still have peace. You can still have peace. This is what James means in verse chapter 1, verse 2, when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We are reminded of this truth from the words of Jesus himself in John 14, 27, when he's talking to the disciples, essentially preparing them for his path to the cross. 
for the persecution that is going to come upon them. They're losing their leader. He's preparing their hearts. And this is what he says to them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. On the night of the darkest hour this earth has ever known, with great sorrow and, and immense pain, Jesus left his followers his peace. A peace that would transcend the circumstances, the agony, the pain. A peace that belonged to them. No one could take it away. Do you know this peace? Now, I know just statistically with the amount of people in this room, there are probably some folks who right now know difficult times maybe more than others. Perhaps it's sickness. Perhaps it's loss. Perhaps it's conflict or relational strife. The amazing thing about the peace that God offers us, the, the, the God of peace, is that it is a peace no one can touch. When you have received it, you cannot lose it. It does not guarantee you know, those disciples would follow Jesus down that road as well. They would live their lives in a way that would lead them to a similar fate. They would give their lives. But they still had and knew his peace. So the first word to understand, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? First, we have to understand the peace of this book, the peace of the book. The, the next word, what I think is helpful is, is perspective, okay? Um, Dominique read a passage of scripture, and it, it is a long one, but it is a fantastic one when we think about what does it mean to receive, to receive peace from God, but then also extend his peace and become a peacemaker. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then I'll make some, some points about it as we go. Uh, verse 11, we're going to go through 22. If, you're, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over Ephesians 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is in reality all of our condition. Every one of us is described in this way, alienated from the commonwealth. We are cut off from God, having no hope and without him. That is our initial state. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he didn't just bring peace that would reconcile man to God. He also brought a peace that would reconcile man one to another. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God 
by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 11-22 is a phenomenal summary, ultimately, of the gospel itself and of its power. It is, in a sense, the lens through which we view all of life. It shapes our perspective as we look out on life. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and it is the perspective by which the saved now view all of life. It, it helps us ha understand how we view ourselves first. Study the Beatitudes, we have seen that the blessed person is the person who recognizes first and foremost their need. That apart from him and his glorious riches, we are poor in spirit. We have nothing to contribute. There's a position that Paul refers to here in Ephesians 2 as strangers of the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. To be genuinely concerned, to, if you want to have any ambition in life of, of making peace anywhere, it starts with a proper understanding of who you are, of your need, of, of my need, a proper healthy view of self. It liberates us, it delivers us from a love of self. As long as you are driven by a single selfish ambition, you don't stand a chance at making peace. This is what we have seen in the Beatitudes. The kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit. The meek are who shall inherit the earth. So it gives us, it shapes our understanding of who we are. It also helps us see who we, our brothers and sisters are. It helps us view a proper view of others. Those who are not crossed over from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, those who are outside of the covenant, outside of the promises, it helps us understand how to view them, how to, how to relate to them. We should look at them, and unfortunately, I think this is probably the place where the church struggles a lot. You know, if you've had any, any history with the church or, or trying to get maybe friends who, who do not belong to the faith to step into the family of faith, um, a lot of times this is one of the hurdles, this is one of the struggles, is that we have a reputation, unfortunately, of being people who are, who are quick to judge, quick to judge. And, and we look at folks and we see the differences and what keeps them. And, and throughout history, we have historically elevated ourselves to a position that is higher. Well, this is completely antithetical to the gospel. The gospel says, no, blessed are the meek. Right? Jesus came as one who would serve. He gave up his riches and moved into our poverty. That's the gospel message. And likewise, we do the same thing. As we look at those who are apart from the, apart from the faith, who are cut off from the promises, we should instantly identify with them because they're in the exact position we were in. We should look at them and really see ourselves. But it also affects the way we view each other, our brothers and sisters within the church. We are reminded that God doesn't save us in isolation. And I, I don't know about you, but sometimes this can be a trick too. Because a lot of times we can think that God just kind of beams us up to him one by one. Well, the reality is he established a church, a community of believers here on this earth. And his desire is to, to, for us to, to learn how to reconcile one to That's the beauty of Ephesians, is that you have men and women who come from different, different cultural, racial backgrounds who have now been brought into one family. They are one new man. It, it shapes, the gospel shapes the way we view each other. It also gives us a proper view of the world that we live in of the world we live in. Our concern in this world is first and foremost the glory of God amongst men. That's, as a follower of Jesus, that is our primary concern. 
when Jesus came to earth, that was his concern, that his father would be the one who would be glorified. And when we look at the craziness, I think especially, I mean, this week is a great reminder of, of a challenge, perhaps, or a test for how we view our world, right? If you just think of the headlines that have covered the stories, the news in this past week, I mean, it, it, you can easily see, you can easily see um, how people, how Christians view the world, that they view it through this gospel lens. When you think about just the Philando Castile and, and really what I would say would be a gross miscarriage of justice, um, and, and at the same time, you see even in the church, you see people being polarized by this issue, all right, by police brutality and, and things that, you know, in an issue where you can see clearly what happened, right? And yet it polarizes people rather than having a response of immediate brokenness, grieving, and mourning for a loss of life, people want to make arguments about it. And meanwhile, we have people who, who know this reality more than some of us ever stand a chance to know it, walk through life, and it's constantly with them wherever they go. And, and as a Christian, our response should be one of, we should mourn when we see sin in our world, regardless of whose sin it is, regardless of whose fault it is, our response should be brokenness and mourning. We learned that back in Nehemiah. When Nehemiah heard of the devastation of his people, the brokenness of his wall, his response was mourning. He fell on his face and he wept and he cried. Think about the shooting that happened. I mean, you go the other end of the spectrum and you think about the baseball game, the congressional baseball game and the, and the shooting that happened there. As we look at the world around us, our response should be brokenness. And the awesome thing about Jesus is, is as God looked at his world, saw brokenness, and he intervened. He moved in. He did something. And that's ultimately, when we think about being a peacemaker, we cannot do it apart from action. We cannot do it apart from action. So it brings us to the next part. Is So we have peace, understanding of peace, perspective, the way we view ourselves, view others, view the world, but then also practice. Uh, one of my favorite preachers currently is a man by the name of H.B. Charles Jr., a preacher out of Jacksonville, Florida, a phenomenal, phenomenal preacher. I mean, just amazing preacher. I, I've read, he's got several books on preaching. I've picked up those books, and I've read those books on preaching. He's got a podcast that's really dedicated to preaching. Um, and he just interviews, just this week, there was one where he's interviewing Tony Evans and about, okay, how do you prepare for a message? How do you deliver a message? How do you use metaphors and illustrations? And, you know, just really diving into the art of preaching. Um, but if I really want to know how H.B. Charles preaches, the best way for me to learn, I mean, I could not do it if he didn't actually stand behind a pulpit and preach, Right? He at some point has to stand up there and deliver a sermon. Otherwise, there's really no legitimacy to much of what he writes. How do you know this is how you do it? He has to practice it. And this should be a challenge for us. This should be a challenge for us. I think especially in this beatitude, as we think about all the ones that we've seen so far, this is one that necessitates activity. It requires practice. You can read all the books you want. You can theorize and you can understand and you can go to classes and you can go to seminars on what it means to make peace. 
But at the end of the day, you are not a peacemaker if it simply stays in your head. At some point, if you want to be a peacemaker, if you want to be a peacemaker, you have to make peace. It requires activity. Just looking at Ephesians chapter 2, you would see one verb after just starting verse 13. But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. I mean, the whole passage is filled with action. God did something. He did something. And so this is a reminder, I think even on Sunday mornings, right, we can step into this place, and, and I'm preaching to myself here more than anybody else. I want you to know that. We can step in this place on a Sunday morning. We can open, and this is honestly like Saturday night when I'm reading over this passage. That's the, that's the biggest wrestle that goes on in my heart, is, is what does this mean for me? How do I obey what this says? And if there's any question that you need an answer to as you approach this book, that's the question that matters the most. That's the question that matters the most. God saw a problem and he acted. He saw conflict, brokenness, and he moved. And it cost him a massive his beloved son, his one and only son, gave up his life, cost him his life. And I say that to say, listen, as we step into, the, if we, if we want to be peacemakers, especially in the gospel sense of what it means to make peace, it will require sacrifice. It demands that we have empathy towards our fellow man, and it requires sacrifice. Many of you, as I'm, I'm saying this now, I'm looking at faces who I know, know that well. Know it well. That it requires, it does not, there's no guarantee that it's easy. There's no guarantee that it's easy. It will require sacrifice. I think of even in Ephesians chapter 6, as, as we hear about the full armor of God, um, we have a tendency, I think, in the church to over-spiritualize things. Um, but in Ephesians in chapter 6, Paul puts um, really... As he talks about the gospel, he says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. When Paul talks about the gospel message, he calls it a gospel of peace. And they are, it's like shoes that we put on that are ready. They are ready to go. They are ready to move. It's active. That's what we need to be. We need to understand peace. We have a proper perspective. And we need to actually practice what we learn. And I will say, to be honest, that's usually the biggest hang-up. It's usually the hardest thing is to actually be, participate in it. It's easy to read a book. Okay, You can read a book in the comfort of your home with a hot cup of coffee all right, and not have to worry about interacting with other people or getting your hands dirty. That's an easy thing to do, and I struggle with that the most, to be honest with you. That's probably my biggest struggle is, okay, I love to get excited about something, but now what does it mean for me to obey it, to practice it? What does it look like to practice speed? I'll just give you a few things as we think about, okay, how do we now practice it? There's a little pamphlet out there. You could grab it if you want to go. If you have people um, in your life who you know um, 
who are coming to you often with problems and you're, you're kind of like a peacemaker for them. Um, there's a good, this is a Ken Sandy Peacemaker Ministry um, pamphlet that just gives you a quick overview of some simple tools that you can use. Just looking at it, it's really helpful. It's obviously an incredibly condensed version of his book. I think it's called Peacemaker. Is that what it's called? Peacemaker, Ken Sandy, anybody? Something like that, yeah, yeah. So these are out there. You can get it. It will just point you if you like this and you want more of it. It'll point you in the right direction. But just for the sake of time, I'm going to give us maybe three, I think just, yeah, just three practical things that we can do, okay? And these are just, I think, really based off of, okay, looking at what are we normally tempted to do and, and trying to think, okay, what does God want us to do, trying to with some scripture. So the first thing is, I think, um, this may sound against what I've said, but it's not, I promise, so hang with me. Um, the first thing is learning not to speak, Learning not to speak. If you're like me, oftentimes, and I think probably this is maybe more of a, probably all of us can relate to some degree, but I think especially men um, can relate to this one, is that when a problem is brought to you, oftentimes your initial response is quick, speak, solve, fix the problem. Okay? And majority of the time, especially if the problem is somebody coming from somebody from maybe a different gender, a lot of times that's not what's expected, right? They're actually better at fixing the problem than we are, okay? No, I can't. I got, you get it once. And it's not going on the internet. Don't put it up there, all right? Just kidding. Oftentimes they're better at it. What is needed, honestly, is really just to listen, is to listen. It, it, we are quick to speak. But oftentimes we should not be I'm reminded of this in James. Know that this is my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Um, I think there's another point that's there is that sometimes we can confuse ourselves. If we speak quickly, if you're like me, we think we've done something. A lot of times we think just talking is what is needed. And so you have a lot of people who do a lot of this but nothing else. Maybe some of you know some of those people in your life where they just, they just do this nonstop. And that's their idea of, of being active and being a peacemaker. And really, all they're doing is talking, all right? Be slow to speak. Another thing is to think, is to look for means and methods to produce peace. Um, and, and later on in Matthew chapter 5, it says, you have heard uh, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And if you see the connection there, earlier in chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. And here, just a few verses down, it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that they may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So you see there's an obvious connection between, okay, Peacemaker, sons of God, and peacemaker, uh, sorry, and loving your neighbor, praying for those who persecute you, sons of God. All right? So in some way, I think you could say, well, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? You could probably look later on in Jesus' own words and say it probably has a lot to do with loving your neighbor and praying for those who persecute you. All right? That's probably what it means to be, when Jesus is talking, just within the context of what he says, that's probably exactly what he means. All right? Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. If you love somebody, if you, you know, as we look at Christian love, we see somebody who's hungry, we think a means to love them is to feed them. We see somebody who is sick, a means to love them is to care for them. And those who, who we have difficult times with, Jesus is telling us exactly what to do. Fall on our knees and cry out 
to him. We pray for those who persecute us. We love and we pray. And the next thing I think just practically speaking is, is this is something that we should do throughout all of our life. And sometimes we can segment our lives into different chunks and we can operate kind of in this way over here and maybe over here we're operating with this. And for me, this is kind of a, a temptation, especially around family. Um, for some reason, just family, I think, knows me best. And historically, they know my whole story and they know who I am. And sometimes when I get into family mode, like extended mom, dad, brother, sisters mode, um, I can just kind of easily slip back into the, the way that they always have known me. I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but, but he wants us to be this way throughout our entire life, through every aspect. And the type of person that makes peace everywhere in life is who he's talking about. And as people, we recognize our selfish nature, and, and people see that if we live as Christians that are selfless, this is different. And really, it comes down to being a winsome person that draws others to you. I can remember when I was in college, I used to always study, there's a, a time I lived on the west side, and there was a coffee shop over there, and I would always study at the coffee shop, there were several hours a day, and there was an individual who worked there, a woman who worked there, and, and we would kind of build a relationship, just talking, and you know, kind of just superficial, just surface level sort of conversation, but she knew I was a follower of Jesus, I would often read my Bible there, and we would have conversations that would center around the scriptures occasionally, and one day she, I came in, and she was just getting ready to clock out, and she said, you know, can I talk to you just for a little bit afterwards? And I mean, this has happened a number of times. This is just one that sticks out of my memory. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so we went outside and just had a little coffee table out there. And she began to tell me just that, you know, a couple years ago she had been raped by a close friend of hers. And she just poured out her heart and her soul. You know, and she cried and I cried. I had, I mean, I had no idea what to say to her. All she wanted, I mean, she knew that I was a person of this book. She saw me day after day after day just operate my life. And the result was she saw somebody who she could be vulnerable with, who she could be real with, and, and just prayed with her, you know? We, we need to be people who initiate this stuff, but also when we live the life that God has called us, what you will find, what you will find is that your phone will ring with people, will ring with people who need peace. They will come to you. As much as we search it out, if we're living the life that God has called us to, what we will find out is that they will be drawn to us. Some of you know this well. Some of you know it well. I know for a fact. Because you see one problem that is brought to you after another. And sometimes it can be a lot, but you're being faithful to what God has called you. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Um, so if you want some more practical things at the welcome table out there, there's that pamphlet. You could just use that, and I think that will be helpful um, as well. Now, how are peacemakers blessed? The Bible says in this verse, chapter nine, verse 9, that they are blessed by being called sons of God. The blessing that belongs to the peacemaker is that we are children of God. And there's an important distinction that I have to make. This blessing is about being children of God. It's not about becoming children of God. There's a difference between the two. It's about being children of God, not becoming children of God. You do not become a child of God by being a peacemaker. You don't learn how to make peace with people, negotiate well, resolve conflict well, and as a result, earn the right to call yourself a son or daughter of God. 
It's not how it works. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what it says in John chapter 1, verse 12. The way you become a child of God is, is you receive him. You believe in his name. In Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ we are all sons of God through faith. For it is only by grace, the offering of the gift of salvation, and through our faith, the receiving of that gift, that any of us have the ability to be called sons of God. In other words, we become sons of God by trusting in Christ for our forgiveness and hope. What Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, 9 is that as we are made children of God, we will look like our Father. We will act like our Father. It's not about becoming a child of God. It's about being a child of God. How does a child of God now live? Romans 16 and 20 or Hebrews 13 and 12, we see clearly that the, our Father is the God of peace. But he is also a great peacemaker. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. God made peace by giving up his son as a peace offering. Jesus, the very prince of peace, died so that we can know his peace. That's, that's how we become a child of God. Being a peacemaker now is really about looking like our daddy. That's what it comes down to. The great peacemaker. The great peacemaker. So the question is, I think the final question just is how do we respond? How should we respond to this? Um, as, as we look at it, I think it's a great transition. The first question to ask is, do you know this peace? Do you know the peace that the Father offers. Do you know the peace that he offers with him? Once far off, now brought near. Do you know this peace within your heart? He himself is our peace. Do you, do you know the peace, the blessing of having peace with your brothers and sisters? He took the two and he made them one. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Do you know the peace of God? You have no chance of making that which you do not know. I'm sure, Mike, you can probably testify to this as working on a construction crew. If you don't have an idea of what the final product is to be, how can you mill it? How can you make it? You have to know the peace you are trying to make. You have to know it. Do you know the peace of God? And the second thing, the second challenge is if you know God's peace, the next question would simply be, what does it look like? I'll give you three categories for you to make peace. One, in our community. Two, in our church. And three, especially for the dads in the house, well, for all of us, in our home. What does it mean for you to be a peacemaker in those three places? We think about our world and what's going on in our world. There is never not an opportunity to make peace. There's always an opportunity to make peace because we live in a broken and a fallen, fallen world. There's just pick up a newspaper, get a Twitter account, turn on the TV, all right, or just go outside even, and you will simply see our world is in desperate need of peace. And it always has been. It always has been. Our church, th there is a need for peace within our family even here. Again, pick up the newspaper even this week. 
and you will see that there is a need for, for peace in this place. And I don't know exactly what's going on in homes, but I know in mine, and I know there's always an opportunity, multiple ones in a day, to make peace. Be a peacemaker. What I want to do to close is I want to give us an opportunity. Like I said before, we want to love. Action means we love well and we pray well. And so I think just in a few minutes here, we have a few. I just want to spend some time corporately in prayer. And so I want you to think of those three areas in your life specifically. Where do you need divine intervention now? Where could potentially you be the solution to the problem that's before you? In our community, in our church, or in your home? I want you to think about that. And what we're going to do is Devin's going to come up, I think, and just play some music. There's going to be a few leaders that are going to be in the back, just kind of standing up back there. If you want to pray with somebody, you can do that. But really, we'll just go for about three to five minutes, okay? Three to five minutes, not a long period of time. If you're here with a family, with a spouse, if you're by yourself, that is totally fine. Just take a few minutes right now between you and God. I want you to think in those three areas, I want you to just bring it before God. Our community, the church, your home. Where do you need peace? And we'll just, we'll pray and then Nevin will we'll close us with a song. Thank you.